0: Hey everyone, welcome back to Podside Picnic. This is Connor, coming to you from sunny Missoula, Montana. I'm just kidding folks, it's not sunny, it's 19 degrees Fahrenheit here, and it's been snowing all day. Uh, (laughs) And for posterity's sake, it is what, October the 28th, right? It's not even Halloween. This is ridiculous folks. I guess welcome to Montana. But anyway, putting that aside, I'm joined by... um, You know I'm trying to think of a good metaphor for what Pete is I guess today he's just Pete, my co-investigator There we Uh, go It's probably 90 degrees where you are, right
1: Pete? You know, sometime next week It's expected to drop down To around 30 degrees I don't know what we're going to do Wait, it's going to be 30 in Vegas next week? Yeah Really? How yeah. does that happen? Uh, rarely. Uh, well, I mean, when you get closer into the winter, it'll it'll happen. It's, I, I mean, at the end of the day, we're in a desert, and so you can get some cold nights. It's just the cold never lasts.
0: Yeah, interesting. I I actually didn't know that Vegas got down. I guess it makes sense because it's actually not. It's not like it's you know that far south. I just think of it as being just unbelievably hot in the summer. But I yeah, guess that, interesting. It's interesting. it's what everyone remembers. That's for sure. Um, yeah, so that was some great literary content for you guys from us. Uh,
1: <laughs> See you next so, week.
0: Yeah, that's the, that's the show. Uh, so what we're doing is, um, it's still Lovecraft Month, and we have some more Lovecraft sort of uh, spin-off or takeoff content, and this time we're doing... A Neil Gaiman short story. Gaiman is someone we have not directly addressed in the show that I'm sure as Podside Picnic goes on into the future, we'll get to more and more. Um, He sort of looms large over contemporary genre fiction, as I'm sure you're all aware. And this short story has a strong Lovecraft influence. In fact, it's set in Innsmouth, Massachusetts, which we've already discussed. It's called Only the End of the World Again, and Pete picked it. I really enjoyed it, but I think that... um, Pete is the one who has the real expertise here. So, Pete, why did you pick this?
1: Well, um, I have well a theory is too long, um, I too too uh, too profound, I guess. I have a I have a thing I noticed about a relationship between uh, Neil Gaiman, Roger Zelazny, and H.P. Lovecraft, and this particular story, written by Neil Gaiman, was de- dedicated to Roger Zelazny and was in Lovecraft's sandbox, and it's what, sort of the springboard for me thinking about this stuff. So, uh, one, I really love the story, and I wanted to share it with you. I mean, at the end of the day, what we're doing is we're trying to find you know interesting and, and fun uh, genre writing, so just just sharing a story is probably enough. But uh, the the links between authors and how they how they read from each other and the, and they borrow, I think, is one of the very interesting things that ties into Lovecraft Month.
0: I I agree, and you know, I mean, the, the the most indisputable like ironclad reason to go back to Lovecraft, even if you don't dig him or you don't dig what he's doing politically or morally, as we've discussed, is because his influence is so profound. And here you have one of the giants, the living giants of genre writing. Uh, Digging deep into that Lovecraft mythos But I want to ask you less about Gaiman and Lovecraft right now, though I'm sure we'll get to that Mm -hmm. I want to ask you, Zelazny That name came up, not someone we've covered on the pod yet His name pops up all over the place when you do sci-fi In particular, the protagonist In uh, Joe Walton's, among others Which we loved, is really into Zelazny And I I don't know much about the guy, but but what does he have to do with this story?
1: Well uh, Roger Zelazny is Well, for one thing, he was uh, When Gaiman first started writing He He regarded uh, uh, Roger Zelazny as primary uh, inspiration. Uh, Among the writers in what we've called the New Wave, he is probably the most uh, poetic. I mean he was his science fiction is very much science fantasy he's interested in the the rhythm of the story and the imagery and like a certain type of character and he generally doesn't give a crap about how a nuclear power plant works and that sort of rhythmic style tied very well into Neil Gaiman's work and in fact like there there's a there's a line that can be drawn from Lovecraft to Gaiman through Zelazny uh like uh one of one of Zelazny's most famous works, which I didn't happen to like, is the Dream Master. I believe it got a Hugo, and it was about entering the realm of dreams and exploring it on a physical level, which of course is right up uh, Lovecraft's alley. Uh, there's there's just a number of dots like that. All three authors, in extremely different ways. Uh, utilize some of the same techniques. And I think it's sort of like having the story sort of run them together, though I know it's just Gaiman, is is of interest to me.
0: Cool. Interesting. So I that, that opens up this whole vista of things that I thought interesting that I was thinking about in reading this. Now, I want to clarify the Gaiman that I've read before. Uh, mm-hmm. I read some of Sandman. Okay. Uh his comic that probably first made him famous. I've read American Gods a long time ago. Do you know who American
1: Gods was dedicated to? Zelazny? Yes.
0: <laughs> Interesting. I guess I didn't catch that at the time, and now I sort of know what that means. And I've read other smatterings of Gaiman. Like he's just he's culturally so hard to ignore because he's he's successfully interpolated himself into all kinds of uh, different media and the mass culture generally. And he is himself sort of an icon with his, like, wonderful, shaggy, dark, uh, both impish and brooding look that he has. Um, you know, there's just so much to like about Gaiman and so much that draws people to him and makes him impossible to ignore. Um, and I think a lot of it for me, what I found interesting about him, is precisely what you said, which is that he is indisputably and unapologetically a genre writer – a very commercial writer that's had tremendous commercial success across comics, novels, short stories, different kinds of screen, everything you can imagine. Um, the dude, wherever the dude goes, he finds an audience and he makes money. And, you mm-hmm. know, hey, God bless. Um, but what's interesting about that, like you said, is that it's impo- for the most part when you're reading Game, and you can tell this is not a guy who wants to strip his prose down and be the most like direct, most cynically commercial writer. Um, and he's also just has a better sense of how prose works, as you said, use words like lyrical and poetic and rhythmic. There's a better sense of how prose works than you know uh, Frank Herbert or Robert Heinlein or other giants of English language genre fiction that we've made fun of. And this is all very true, and so Gaiman is one of those people who is constantly at the heart of the eternal, the eternal war, the eternal argument that, in some ways, motivates this podcast, which is like, where is the dividing line between? literary work and genre work or you'd say serious work versus you know commercial or, or whatever distinction you, you want to draw work highbrow versus middle brow versus lowbrow like where do we draw these boundaries and why and what value and I feel like whenever that happens out in the real world among ordinary readers Gaiman is one of the biggest names that comes up because people who love reading particular kinds of genre fiction especially contemporary fantasy will always bring up Gaiman and say well Gaiman is great he's a phenomenal writer and if you can't appreciate him that's just because you're a snob and a poseur etc cetera, etc cetera. I think we've all had this discussion Right, Pete. <laughs>
1: Absolutely. Well, I mean, if if every genre writer were like Gaiman, the whole concept of genre writing would just feel like a category error. Because he's, I mean, he definitely straddles. Well, he's like, um, oh, the the uh, the guy who wrote The Underground Railroad. Oh, Colson Whitehead. Um, Colson Whitehead. Yeah. Like no, and, and I'm not. I'm not. Comparing or ranking either author. I'm just saying one of the things that they have in common is they seem very good at moving between, like, the genre tradition and, and you know, like, genuine novels. Yeah, they're, they're
0: you know, that's interesting. Like, they're, there are two different sides of the border, Whitehead and Gaiman, but they're both interested in how to cross that divide, which is my big obsession. And I think to give people a little bit of a sense... Uh, what we, you know, people have probably listening to this probably read Gaiman in some form, but I'm going to go ahead and read from the story a little bit, just so we can ground their discussion in the actual prose. I'm just going to read from the opening for a few paragraphs here. It was a bad day. I woke up naked in the bed with a cramp in my stomach, feeling more or less like hell. Something about the quality of the light stretched and metallic, like the color of a migraine told me it was afternoon. The room was freezing. Literally. There was a thin crust of ice on the inside of the windows. The shoots on the bed around me were ripped and clawed, and there's animal hair in the bed. It itched. I was thinking about staying in bed for the next week. I'm always tired after a change, but a wave of nausea forced me to disentangle myself from the bedding and to stumble hurriedly into the apartment's tiny bathroom. The cramps hit me again as I got to the bathroom door. I held onto the door frame and I started to sweat. Maybe it was a fever. I hoped I wasn't coming down with something. All right, so that's just a little taste from the beginning of this. It goes some wild places. Um, actually, you know, I'll go a, a little bit farther so you can get where this is going. I won't, <laughs> I won't spare people here. Uh, so, picking up right there. The, cramp, the cramping was sharp in my guts. My head felt swimmy. I crumbled to the floor, and before I could manage to raise my head enough to find the toilet bowl, I began to spew. I vomited a foul-smelling thin yellow liquid. And it was a dog's paw. My guess was a Doberman's, but I'm not really a dog person. A tomato peel, some diced carrots and sweet corn, some lumps of half-chewed meat raw, and some fingers. They were fairly small, pale fingers. Obviously a child's. Shit. <laughs> <laughs> the shit is the dialogue from the character, by the way. Um, okay, so they could see where that's going. Uh, our protagonist, I'm not spoiling much by saying, is a whale- werewolf. Now, in the 16 pages of the story, uh, he packs in a lot more than just lycanthropy, because it's set in Innsmouth, Massachusetts. (laughs) Uh, It's like latter day, late 20th century Innsmouth, I guess, or early 21st century, and um, it goes, look, it goes to wild places, only 16 pages. But you can see, uh, the first point I wanna make here is there's nothing in any way wrong with that prose. you know, I think you have to really stretch to make fun of it. It certainly protects, it protects itself by being wry and kinetic, but these are generally good things. And it's, look, I mean, it's clear, it picks its spot to make, to play with words and do its fun turns of phrase, all of the kinds of things that, you know, it's establishing the character, it's giving us the sort of emotional undercurrents with the kinetic overcurrent, like whatever you want to say. Look, my point being, if I brought this prose into my class here at writing school, uh, people would be generally okay with it. I don't think they'd be ripping apart those paragraphs. So like, you know, more so than, again, I'll say Frank Herbert being an extreme counterexample. Like Frank (laughs) Herbert, you could just rip apart uh, left and right. Point being, like, yeah, so the problem, if anything separates Gaiman from other forms of writing, if anything is going to put people above him, which is not something I'm eager to do, but let's say if you were trying to do that, it's not going to be the prose itself for the most part. And I will just tell everyone, I probably said this (laughs) thing here before, but like, I think good prose is cheap. Uh, if you go to any upper level undergrad creative writing class uh, anywhere in the world, probably you'll find a lot of people writing great sentences. It's what to do with them <laughs> at a sort of deeper and broader, but a deeper and broader level that bedevils people and is why not everyone becomes great writers. But um, so it's
1: like the difference between making bricks and making a house.
0: That's a really good metaphor, actually, Pete. See, there you go. So, like, you're, you're getting a good grade in my creative writing class. That's a great, great line. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, look, I, I don't want to go on too much about this, but I think we're going to dip as this, as this episode goes – we're going to go farther towards talking about craft generally. Um, and I think, you know, I, I want to give Pete a chance to respond here, but the thing I want to tease a little bit is just to say um, – This story both shows the ways in which Gaiman is not, in in many ways, not the inferior of snooty literary writing, but it also shows some of the ways that genre writing makes things a little bit easier for itself that is probably where, again, in writing school or in these high-flown settings, people would start to pick this story apart. But I want to get kind of I want I want Pete to kind of tell us about this story and why he cares about it before we start doing that. Is that a
1: fair request, Pete? Sure, absolutely. Well, one of the things I want to call out here that I mean you'd have to read a fair amount of of Lovecraft, uh, Gaiman, and Zelazny to know or care about is that Gaiman really did a good job of capturing Zelazny's voice. What, what Zelazny was, was excellent at is he would take historical or mythical uh, uh, characters and he would give them uh, the common touch. And so you'd have, you'd have uh, two gods arguing against each other, and one of them would be like, look, uh, I don't want to get off on the wrong foot with you, and the other one would be like, I didn't want to get off on any foot with you at all. Like, that is the sort of language that he injects into these mythic figures. Like, it's, it's conversational, it's pithy, it's got a pace, and the idea of, of somebody attempting to echo him Really connected to me because it, it kind of showed that Gaiman cared about the same things I did in the writing and I, I I don't know if in a larger literary sense that was important but like to me it was really important. Um, I, I, also, I want to interrupt and say I do think it matters
0: just because I think one of the sort of koans of writing school that I embrace is that when you can detect what the writer cares about in the story you're always going to have a better time and the story will be better. Sorry keep going. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs>
1: No, that's great. And uh, another thing that happened here is... Um, well, I always think about it uh, in terms of... of uh, I don't know, like author perspective. Like generally speaking, when you're dealing with a Lovecraftian world, anything that is not incomprehensible and evil is screwed. And in Zelazny's world... Um, Anybody who risks all and steps up wins And uh, I think uh, Gaiman did a really good idea uh, job Of taking those two perspectives And shoving them through a blender Like the, the protagonist here Who is clearly a Zelazny-esque character Does not completely follow the Zelazny arc He ends up getting like screwed over And at the end of the day he's kind of a well, I mean, he, he, he's a werewolf. He wakes up and he's done horrible things, and he has to deal with that every day of his life. Uh, but it doesn't follow the Lovecraftian arc either, where, which was the end point of this would be the destruction of all human life and things stop about 15 minutes before that. I mean, he does a really good time. Uh, he squares the circle, basically. And I think it's the sort of thing that I would think a lot of excited authors would attempt but they wouldn't do it well. And he did it in like 16 pages. Like like it's, it's kind of amazing to me that you could do something that I think is fairly complicated and do it at this much of a clip.
0: Yeah. I think that's all a great analysis. I agree with it. By the way, the story we'll post it. Um, on our Patreon and and that sort of thing. If you're curious to read more, it is free available online. And I just want to say, as a side note, I think we're going to keep doing more short stories because it's really nice to have something that we can read quickly and that you can read quickly as our audience. So this is this is fruitful. Um, but anyway, back to the story. Yeah, that's. I think that's an interesting analysis. Uh, it it also brings up. It's also sure like there's there's a sort of a deep sense here that I really appreciate of like that Gaiman to classify him as a writer. He really—he's a guy, and the that the reason that this guy has succeeded the way he has, um, you know, he understands and has done his homework on how stories work to a depth that is really unusual in any kind of writer. And what I mean by that is, for instance, he's this story is a sort of a me, a wry meta take on that classic way to make stories move both in fictional worlds and here in the real world to make narratives move, uh, to argue for something narratively is to say the world's going to end. And this story, you know, again, as Gaiman is very interested in doing, it's, only, it's called Only the End of the World Again. So it's kind of making fun of that premise and it, and it teases it, plays with it in 16 pages, um, you know sort of steps back from it and, and again like there are deep theories here one day we'll get to Frank Kermode whom I've mentioned before and his idea of how we structure stories using that sense of that imminent ending of the world not just the ending of the story and how that's mirrored out in the real world and there's a lot to be said there but again like Gaiman knows this stuff backwards and forwards I remember when I was shopping around recently for books about Norse mythology someone who's put out a lot of work on Norse mythology and has actually done his like They're not translations, but sort of adaptations that are trying to be true to the original Norse myths is, of course, Neil Gaiman. Um, Because he's, you know, again, dude has done his homework um, in a way that I really, really respect and admire. So this story, I think, shows a lot. It trots out a lot of that in just a few pages. Um, You know, I... If I were to quibble with it, I could start going down the road and saying like, "Well, this is not Lovecraft's
1: Insmith or like whatever nerd thing you sure. want to say," but which is fine. But um, well, that's and you really can a, attack yeah. it from both. Or, or, you could, you could attack it from the Zelazny side too. I mean, it's definitely uh, uh, two things stapled together. Oh yeah, and again,
0: it's it's a very. It, I'll keep using the word meta here because, as you said, it's sort of an experiment and combining these two canons, these two approaches. And it's, it sort of wears the fact that it's an experiment on its sleeve. So you can, that's one reason it's a short story rather than like a novel that took five years to write or whatever, you know, fair enough to all of that. Um, I think like what I want to say, the level, but a level of craft here. And I think something that's very interesting for the idea of drawing boundaries between literary and genre is, do you mind if I tangent a little bit about plot here, Pete? Go nuts. So, Plot is a lot of things. Um, you know, in, a, in the most literal sense, it's just the action of the story, the stuff that you can kind of pull out from the text itself and kind of peg and say, like, here are the moments where something happens. And you can kind of it's it, you a know, plot can be outlined. It can be pulled away from the story like a skeleton. Um, and there are all kinds of metaphors that one might use. So I just said skeleton. You could say, I'd like to say that it's both an infrastructure and an architecture because it both moves and It's a core, a core, uh, thing of, it's a core aspect of what it does. And it also holds things like an architecture in a complex way. Um, and I think that plot, I don't think, I know that plot bedevils literary writers who don't learn it in their formal training and in institutions, often MFAs. That's just not, I'm just here to tell you, that's not what MFAs generally talk about for the most part. (laughs) And there's a whole longer conversation to be had here about my MFA in that way, but I'll skip that for now. Um, And it's certainly something that genre writers are forced to talk about because the questions you're going to be having in commercial fiction settings will often be about about exactly that. Like, is your story propulsive enough? Does it move well enough on its own terms, you know, without caring about all that deep, (laughs) all those deep things or whatever. And I'll use a metaphor that one of my teachers uses. He says that, stories have a daylight world and a dream world and the daylight world is the things that happens which to you know plot is part of that that's not all that he means but it's all the surface things plot being a major part of the daylight world and to him stories are about the dream world which is sort of that deep underlying emotional and thematic core that poses all these mysteries and difficulties that get manifested out in the daylight world is this making sense so far pete
1: yeah, yeah. I, I'm a little disappointed that he didn't say that there's another side, a dark side. You know, did you watch? The- <laughs> no, I don't think I did. <laughs> oh, there was a there was a knockoff of the Twilight Zone called Tales from the Dark Side that that used very similar to language to what you're saying. Interesting. Interesting. And in fact, I really wish that my teacher would write this down
0: systematically so I could reference it more easily, but this is what we talk about a lot in my workshop. Um so what? I, here's what I would say about plot, though. There's so much to be said. What I want to focus on right now is that I think the way that I've begun to think about plot is that plot, in a lot of ways, is a form of help. It's not, for most stories, even the most commercial ones, it's not necessarily... There, you know, if you're gonna drill down, plot, plot tends to we tend to talk about plot as if it's a surface thing, right? The daylight world, once again, mm-hmm. or that it's something that you can pull out and abstract from from the sort of deeper essence of the text because it does have these just sort of like um, very firm elements to it. So, what plot does is it's a form of help. Uh, it helps the reader. It helps the characters when you are writing the story. It helps you as a writer come up with you know, how to keep things moving forward and how to maintain structure. It it often, it comes to the aid of all of the more difficult, more nebulous, but ultimately in many ways more essential and ineluctable parts of storytelling. Um, And I think that what this story does very interestingly, like this story highlights that help aspect so strongly because you come in with all of these acquired elements that you can just sort of plug in and play with and that doesn't make it a bad story. It doesn't take away from what it's doing because what it's doing is precisely that. It's very much aware that it's doing that. But I think there's something to be said about, not necessarily about drawing a dividing line between literary fiction and genre fiction, which doesn't is not a line that actually interests me in the way that it's supposed to. Um, and I'm sure we'll keep talking about that on the show. But like, what interests me, I think more is that, you know, the 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 way in which plot helps if plot helps you in like a cynical way in sort of a prefabricated way that everyone knows the beats of the plot before the, the movie happens, before the, mo- the text happens or the movie happens before the Marvel movie happens. Um, <laughs> then, so. That that kind of help, that's a that's arguably a bad kind of help for lack of a better term. Uh, You know, and the good kind of help is like coming up with plots that are no less rigorously structured or propulsive, but are going to help you extract really interesting things from your characters that are going to take your readers to interesting places. And again, the plot is only one element. It's a set of tools. It's the most mechanical in a lot of ways aspect of the broader story. But but I think that like if you wanted to quibble with the story, you would say like, well, you know, it's a classic case of how genre fiction makes the, the help too easy. Cause like all of the elements are already there. All of the, you know, we're just, we're dealing in tropes and cliches and you can be as wry and sardonic and reflexive as you want, but there's still just, it's still like a prefab house that you're installing. And it's like, all right, you can say that this story is very much making that its point. So I would, that's not really a take down of this story. But, um, I think that that's that that the nature, the nature of plot, like, is this, is the help cynical or is it, Something else. I'm trying to think of what that dichotomy I want to draw here is. Is it? Um, hmm. I don't know. I'm going to think more about the term well, I want to use. But do you see am getting at Pete here?
1: Yeah. And let, let's talk about limits for a second because I do remember. Uh, I uh, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. There's a discussion in there about uh, the 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 main character trying to get one of his students to write. And they're like, okay, well, what I want you to do is write about the history of the town hall. And they're paralyzed. They're stuck. They don't know where to go with it. And he's like, okay, well, talk about the front of the town hall. And they're still stuck. And finally, he goes, all right, I want you to go to the far corner and count up three and write about that brick. And so there is like... There's an infinite number of of uh, combinations of words. Like, we all know this. And uh, limitations are not in and of themselves a bad thing. Like, one of the things that make genre writing work is, yes, it does draw boxes around things and it does limit. But when you're limiting the infinite, you still have the infinite.
0: Yeah. And you make a... a- You're getting onto a number of really important things here. One that I would say is like, what's the most famous kind of limitation in the history, in literature broadly. And that's just poetic form. Poetic form is a a form is self-imposed limitation. Right. Yeah. Um, And I think, and again, I want to do a full episode of this one day, maybe with Adam and uh, maybe with other folks, this is a good topic to dig deeper into. But you're actually, what you're hitting on here is there's actually a set of theories now about the fact that the, impose limitations of genre storytelling prov- actually open up a set of possibilities that are more interesting than the sort of the way literary work often tries to push towards this like ineffable set of truths and doesn't give itself useful formal limitations to work with and so on and so forth. And right. honestly, a lot of the conversation I've been having on my program are with people who want to figure out what are those formal limitations? What is that framework? What is that? In any case, it is, would be plot. Like what is that? What is that sort of, structure they can find themselves within and then sort of flourish on the terms that that allows rather than just staring at a blank page and being like, all right, I have to be profound about like, yeah, I have a character, But like, you know, what's going to happen? How am I going to actually act upon that character? That's why I say that plot is a form of help at all levels for readers, for writers, for characters, because it starts. It helps you answer those questions like what is going to happen and why does it matter? And you start to sort of unspool all the really interesting questions in the story with that very mechanical aid. And I think Pete did a really good job touching on it there.
1: Oh, thank you. I I'm actually um, I'm running into this at work a lot. Like I've recently been getting a series of instructions to like design something, go build something that allows people to learn. And that's the extent of the instructions I get. And that's been (laughs) paralyzing to me. Oh my God, there's nothing you can do with it. So what, what I've started doing is laying down some fairly arbitrary restrictions on myself. And that's allowed me to move forward. And I mean, I I imagine that's how some of these things evolved. I know you you probably aren't as focused as the history of where these different limitations came from. But on some level, I have to suspect that some of them were just set up by somebody screwing around.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, I I think that like... All of these conventions of storytelling definitely have their origin. A lot of trial and error <laughs> throughout history, um, and yeah, it's it is really I think that where a lot of writing instruction can really risk can risk sending students out into a vast <laughs> a vast ocean of confusion is precisely that. It's like if, if the general instruction is like, well, you know, <laughs> invent a character and have them, you know, sort of be dig down deep into who they are and find that emotional core. That emotional core is, of course, deeply important within the question immediately becomes like, all right, is my character just going to sit in a room the entire time thinking about things? There are some really successful novels that make that move, but they make that move precisely because they're resisting or undercutting. Uh, Conventions that are well established. So, like, again, when you have the conventions as an artist, there's always an urge to resist them, or at least to challenge them. And like, again, it's it's not so much that like you can you can take a screenwriting beat sheet. I've done this, and you can map a story to it, and that's a good starting point. But like, as the story becomes more interesting, and you understand your characters better, and you're more immersed in it, you're gonna find yourself challenging some of those conventional moments. And that you know that's sort of that that friction between imaginative possibility and rigorously impose limitations is really kind of where art happens. It's those formal limitations colliding with your ability to resist and play within them. That is really where the, where the magic happens, baby. Um, you know, again, that sounds kind of straight. Uh, although I will say that being, that having been in a philosophy of art class all semester, uh, I don't know that centru- uh, millennia rather of philosophy thinking about how art works has gotten much farther than that. So I feel fine about
1: saying it. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, I mean, the worst the worst you could get out of is an argument with somebody with another opinion. So yeah, totally. So um, we are you know, we're not to the end, but we're getting we're we're sort of getting to where we wanted to go here. Um, can we talk a little bit about uh, you, Connor, and what's been up with you recently? Yeah, I feel like I was doing a lot of that just now, but I'm happy to answer more questions. <laughs> okay, well, I mean, like, I think you were, uh, you were uh, discussing theory and technique there. I, I, was, I was interested in, like, you know, um, how's your writing going? Well, I think
0: that I wrote what I would honestly say is the best short story I've ever written. And I can say that without it being hubristic, because I don't really care about short stories. So when I say that, it's not like this is the big, (laughs) I've reached a new pinnacle in my writing life. It's more just that like (laughs) I did a short story, so I have to write short stories for class. And it's probably the best one I've ever done in 10 years or 12 years or so of doing them. So, um, and I made Pete read it, didn't I, Pete?
1: (laughs) You did. Well, and I mean, you you didn't have to twist my arm either. I was excited. And it's, you have, uh, since I've met you, your writing has changed. And I think for the better, like I, I've, I've liked it all along. I think I've been pr- pretty clear about that. But uh, like, I, I think I think your, your your female characters are more engaging. There's, a, there's more mystery going on. Like I, I found with this last story, I found myself t- like digging for a deeper understanding of something that I wasn't supposed to understand, which I think is a pretty good sign. Like that's a level of engagement you want in a, in a short story. So I liked it.
0: Well, thanks, man. I want to hear more about the mystery aspect, and I totally agree. Like, my current novel sets a bunch of mysteries up, and um, I found that that is a really, really useful storytelling device, and that's, in in many ways, like, one of the biggest changes of me becoming more genre-esque in my writing. Um, But first, do you want to... I could describe what the story is about, but do you want to tell folks what it's about in your own words?
1: Sure, and uh, feel free to buzz me in the middle if I I start going in the wrong direction. Uh, The... uh, the the story takes place in an empire, and I believe it is the Austro-Hungarian Empire. But I would I would need to Google more than I did to verify. You're correct. That. Yes, it is. Okay, and it is about um, it is about a a young. Uh, well, I mean, you could say it's a young revolutionary or a young woman having an adventure. It's sort of difficult to say like how committed she is to the revolution, but she's definitely a revolutionary. She has a handler and she is supposed to go in and make contact. And I believe, uh, uh seduce a person. And it is about that interaction, her discussing things with her handler, her interacting with people on the on the the train, her connecting with this uh, with this target. And I found myself going, well, who are these people? Like is is uh is uh, a, a famous assassin going to come up or what kind of revolution is this? Are that are they anarchists? Is is this a Soviet thing? Like I was trying to piece together what was happening and the it, it it all came from uh, Connor's head like I, it felt like a real event and it felt like he was leaning on a real event so I found myself looking deep for that I actually did a little research and developed a theory on who the target was and all of this stuff and it turns out that like that was a complete <laughs> waste of my time. you talk. identified an
0: actual historical figure that you thought was the target in this story yes I did <laughs> oh my god wow I am first of all I'm honored that you went that far Um, Yeah, it's not based on an actual historical figure. I'm I'm really just trading on the general history of left-wing insurrection and resistance and sometimes successful revolution in the early 20th century Um, in the Austro-Hungarian Empire. I don't know much about the history of that in the Austro-Hungarian Empire. I'm sure that it happened to some degree. But I definitely took some creative liberties, and in fact, if I want to carry this story forward I might have to fictionalize it further so that I'm not accountable for the facts of history but um, I just found myself interested in that part of the world and as you said it takes place on a train which is crucial because here's a fun storytelling tip that I've picked up that I think is easily applicable one way to move your story forward whether it's a short story or a novel or anything else is just to have a clock going. I don't mean necessarily a literal like bu- you know ticking time bomb thing. We know we've seen the ticking time bomb stories, but literally just like set it up. It's on a train. You know the train is going to a destination, or say you're waiting for the train. You know it's going to arrive, and that puts pressure in the situation that will help you immensely. And there's often a clock running in the story, whether you notice it or not as a reader. Um, anyway, just a handy fun tip here: the clock. And that in this case is the train's going to end up somewhere, and they have to get off the train before it does. Um, but yeah, thanks for reading, Pete. Uh, it, it's definitely a story that denies people the kind of decisive action-laden denouement they might be be hoping for. I hope that denial was productive for you. It's kind of a subtle ending without spoiling it too much. Did, did it work for you?
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it it, it left me uh, – my first reaction was that I, I should know – what happens next? Like I had this vision of go, of you going. Well, come on, Pete. How the hell do you not know what happened in the Austro-Hungarian Empire in nineteen? 19- <laughs> <laughs> you give me so much credit that I don't deserve. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it, it was it was good because like like that that I mean it it motivated me. Like I ended up rereading the last section, looking for clues for something that didn't exist. That sort of thing. Oh my God. Uh, can I ask you who who in your Um, who are you thinking of? (laughs) Um, well, so there is a, there's a famous, uh, cellist, uh, who was, uh, born in Hungary named Janos, who, uh, was, who, uh, like died within the past few years. And I thought it was his father. Oh, Interesting. Okay, I did not know any of that. Oh, and um, I was like, "This is getting pretty obscure, dude." Like, if I'm right, I have follow up questions. <laughs> <laughs> um, interesting. Well, I really appreciate you
0: reading it. I'm I'm hope I'm going to see about developing this and trying to publish it somewhere. Um, by the way, uh, I, I forgot to say the obvious, like we're talking about sort of insurrection resistance in the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Of course, it was someone resisting the Austro-Hungarian Empire that started World War I, Gavrilo Princip. He was not a left-winger, though. He was a Serbian, uh, ultra, or Bosnian-Serbian, ultra-nationalist. But that's just, I feel like people are going to yell at me for that if I don't mention it. So, yeah. <laughs> But I'm not thinking well, about Gavrilo Princip here, <laughs> to be clear. <laughs>
1: I actually, I took a look at American Gods, and he dedicated it to, like, from from Kathy Acker to Roger Zelazny. So while his name was spe- specifically mentioned, it was actually, like, to a whole bunch of authors. That, oh, wow, it's from A to
0: Z. That's what yes. he was doing there. Interesting that he mentioned Acker, because talk about, like, an, a, a, a difficult uh, convention, like, conventionally subversive uh, writer Acker is way up there as far as like an avant-garde in the 90s especially a uh, very interesting figure but like yeah as sort of like <laughs> as difficultly literary as it gets
1: really interesting that Gaiman would mention her good for him I would say awesome um, um, I think we're kind of there guy what do you think
0: yeah, I think we are. Like again, we touched on a lot of topics that are sort of ongoing uh, things that we discuss in the show. I hope that we did a little bit more to sort of problematize that boundary between genre and literary, and think about how that might work. It's going to be an ongoing thing for us. I think mean, that's a good thing. I think there's like so much to explore here, and as my own work evolves, um, I think I'll have more and more to say about it. But I want to. I want to end by saying this, which is that like. I need to read more Gaiman. Uh, this story reminded me of that because I do think that, like, it's, it's no accident that he's been so, so successful. I think that he is one of the people that I think kind of holds the key to um, <laughs> building a greater unity uh, in sort of the, liter- the fiction world. Um, because in my, in my, like, utopia, my artistic utopia, Uh, which might necessarily need to correspond to a broader utopia but let's just say that I get my wish in the fictional world I would say like ameliorating some of those boundaries is you know or or doing away with them is is something that I'm so interested in and I think that Gaiman um, is is definitely his project is doing something and moving in that direction in a useful way so you know two thumbs up for Neil Gaiman that's my final thought (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> okay. Well, my final thought was I don't know where I found in me the urge to call you Guy, and that's definitely the last time it's ever going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to let that go, but uh, okay, appreciate it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that probably that's probably a wrap for us, folks. Thanks again for listening. We'll put the short story up on the Patreon. It's called "Only the End of the World Again" by Neil Gaiman. Pretty easy to find online, even though Google search has gotten worse. That's a different topic, though. Thanks, everybody. <laughs> Take care.